This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, the bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Thomas Ling, digital editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Currently, the world is going through its worst ever outbreak of bird flu. An estimated 160 million domestic birds have died as a result of the virus around the globe. But why exactly has the disease spread so far? What happens when a bird gets the flu? And are humans at risk? To discuss all this, I'm joined by Dr. Alistair Ward. He's not only a member of the Government Bird Flu Task Force, but Associate Professor of Biodiversity and Ecosystem Management at the University of Leeds. Hello, Alistair. Thank you very much for joining us. Morning. So... In the UK, 600,000 free-range turkeys, that's half of them, have died or been cold because of bird flu, um, also known as avian flu. If you were a healthy turkey right now, how worried would you be? Well, as we've said in uh, last year, uh, this is uh, unlike any other year we've seen before, and we're seeing it again this year. More outbreaks that we've seen before, and every time we have an outbreak, uh, the entire flock is depopulated. So it is a worrying time. It's a huge worrying time for the industry, especially at this time of year when we're all looking forward to getting a bird on the plate on the Christmas table. So yeah, it's a, it's a continuing uh, concern, but particularly bad again this year, worse than it was the year before. So why is it particularly bad this year? 
Well, the, the, the strain of virus, uh, which does change regularly, seems to be particularly good at surviving. It seems to be more infectious, and it also seems to be more deadly uh, than it has been before. So the current strain of um, H5N1 just seems to be, when it gets into a flock, it just decimates the flock. And that's whether that's a, a flock of poultry or a flock of wild birds as well, or some wild birds, not all wild birds, just, uh, just some of them. So how is it exactly that bird flu spreads? Typically, we thought of, of it as being, um, or, or traditionally thought of it as being a, 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 almost like a, an aerosol-transmitted uh, virus, but it doesn't seem to be as effectively transmitted in that way as other influenza viruses are. So it seems to be that there is some contact um, with contaminated material, whether that is a contaminated bird, uh, so physical contact, or whether it's uh, physical contact with uh, contaminated material. So they, they may be additional ways, and they're probably the more likely ways um, that uh, the virus is spread um, between individuals and between species. So that physical contact does seem to be an important element of transmission. So this particular strain, the H5N1, how long has it been around for? It was first discovered in the 1990s on poultry farm in China. Uh, so that's where it first emerged. Um, but I mean, the disease goes back well over a century. It was first identified uh, on a poultry farm in, in Italy in the late 1800s. But the H5N1 strain that has given rise to all the problems we're seeing today was a poultry farm in China in the 1990s. There are lots of headlines uh, concerning domestic birds at the moment, birds on farms being under threat. But how much are other birds? What about wild birds? Are they under threat at the moment? Absolutely, yes. Um, again, it, it, in an unprecedented way. Normally, when we've seen significant outbreaks of avian influenza, H5N1 strain, you typically see it in anseriforms, so the, the ducks, geese and swans. But they seem to be relatively resistant to it. You haven't seen the huge die-offs of, of, of those populations in the past. But what we saw over the, the previous winter was um, significant die-offs in some species of seabird, which we'd never seen before. So it's it's been a, a, a bit of a shock to see in some of these large colonies on Bass Rock, for example, in, in, in Scotland, many of the other colonies around Scotland and Northern England. Um, we've seen substantial die-offs of species such as, uh, as, as gannets, uh, great skewers, that we've never seen uh, this virus in before. So it seems to be not only more infectious and more, more, more lethal, but it also seems to be infecting more species of the birds uh, than it has done in the past. Could this virus be an extinction threat to some of these species? Um, it, it certainly will likely drive populations down. I am clinging to the hope that uh, many of these species will end up developing a herd immunity um, once, once the virus has spread through the population and unfortunately may well kill off a large number of birds. Then those that are naturally resistant uh, to the infection should hopefully survive and give rise to the future populations or future generations of those birds. And so, yeah, unfortunately, I think it will be a, a very tough period but uh, I'm hopeful that no species will go extinct. That is less likely to happen if we can alleviate some of the other pressures uh, that we're causing on wild bird populations, such as the impacts of climate change, the impacts of habitat loss, habitat fragmentation, because they're, they're causing additional pressures um, on these birds. So they're already under pressure. So then facing this disease now is one other pressure that, that, that could well push them over the brink. So if we can perhaps reduce some of those other pressures, then maybe the effects of bird flu uh, might be lessened. What happens if you're an adult bird and you get this flu? Is it like when a healthy adult gets a flu 
Uh, and generally have to spend a few days under the duvet watching Homes Under the Hammer. Is there a bird equivalent to that? I don't think there's an equivalent of birds uh, uh, un- uh, Homes Under the Hammer, but um, yeah, <laughs> they're, um, th- the symptoms are actually um, remarkably similar. So there will be nasal discharge um, of, of some birds that are inflected with highly pathogenic avian influenza, such as the H5N1 strain. And then they can go through a period of lethargy that we're all familiar with. But in those extreme cases, um, then the birds can decline quite rapidly. Um, you tend to see a lot of malaise within the birds, a disinterest in food and drink, uh, not wanting uh, or not wanting to move around very much. And you sometimes see a bit of a discoloration of the uh, of the comb uh, and also of the wattles um, on the head. They can go a sort of funny bluish colour. But generally speaking, the symptoms seem quite similar to what you would see in a human. So, so were you saying that there's a way you could just tell if a bird has flu just by staring at it? Uh, n- n- no, sorry, it's not. It's not quite that simple. So these these are some of the classic symptoms. So and these some of these symptoms are shared with other diseases as well. So just looking at a bird and seeing these symptoms does not guarantee that it has has bird flu. There are many strains of bird flu um, that go undetected. So these are the low pathogenic avian influenzas. So they're the same virus. They're just different strains. They don't cause mass mortality uh, amongst poultry and often go uh, undetected. So I mean, the, what the government asks is that if you see signs that you think might be bird flu as a, as a poultry farmer, that you get in touch with them so they can come and come and test the birds for you to, to confirm whether the tree is. Because you cannot be 100% sure that it is bird flu just by looking at the symptoms alone. What about humans? So I guess a big question a lot of people have is, can bird flu spread to humans? In some extreme circumstances uh, it has in the past and those the, the strains that have passed to humans have typically been the h5n1 strain but there are genetic reassortments that have to happen for it to be able to pass uh, easily to humans so the current strain doesn't seem to be posing a huge threat uh, to humans uh, there, there has been a case in the uk of someone that lived very close to an infected uh, population of ducks but that was very very rare and um, that individual was was almost asymptomatic so it was um uh, the, the symptoms were were very very low indeed now in the past there has been significant outbreaks uh, amongst people particularly those working very closely with um, with poultry uh, in asia uh, and People have died from it. There was a, a mortality rate of around about uh, 60% amongst human beings who contracted H5N1 in China uh, several decades ago. But as I say, it requires certain genetic changes to happen um, before it can make that that leap from birds uh, to human beings. And, and those changes seem to happen very infrequently. So the current belief is that risks to humans are low. But we say that with a high degree of uncertainty. And I, I guess the big figure that's going to stand out from what you just said is the the sixty percent fatality figure. And obviously, with coronavirus, it was what sitting around one one two percent. So, do you think overall that humans should be scared at this point? Um, no, I don't, I don't think it's anything to be scared for on a human health basis because that that sixty percent that was amongst poultry workers, so people that were working in abattoirs, and so um, you know, and, and and 
levels of PPE weren't exactly great. Um, so uh, personal protective equipment, so biosecurity measures weren't exactly great. So it was perhaps no surprise that those individuals were coming into contact with very high infectious loads of material, which you just don't get in the United Kingdom. So our bio, uh, biosecurity practices are of, of a very high standard. So, uh, and as long as people follow advice with regards to, you know, the way that they handle birds or, or avoid handling found dead birds, for example, then the risks to humans are very low. But again, I'm going to say that with a high degree of uncertainty um, because, you know, we, we are just one year in uh, to the current outbreak of H5N1. If a um, human contracts bird flu, could they potentially pass it on to another human or is that quite difficult to do? Yeah, I mean, that, that seems to be a very rare occurrence. Again, there is some evidence for it of having happened in previous outbreaks in Southeast Asia, but it, it just does not seem to transmit very effectively from one person to another. So if there was an outbreak uh, within a human population, which is highly unlikely, then it theoretically it should be very easy to contain. Vaccines have been de uh, developed against uh, bird flu, and there is prophylactic me medicine available to take care of um, if, if there are any small outbreaks. And that, combined with the fact that it doesn't transmit particularly well between people, means it should be very easy to control if it does affect human populations. So is it basically unless you are working, say, on a, on a chicken farm, when you're working with close proximity to these birds, is it only then that you might need to be worried? I think uh, if, if you work very closely with poultry, so whether in the raising of poultry or ducks, geese and swans um, uh, within, a, within a, a farm setting or on a unit where um, they are slaughtered, then you just need to adopt the standard biosecurity practices that most people are, uh, who work in those instances are already taking because they should be enough to mitigate your risk. Do you think there's a lot of unwarranted panic uh, around bird flu at the moment? I, I understand there's, there's a lot of people already asking, you know, could this be the next pandemic, uh, especially with headlines saying that you know, government scientists are on standby to produce modelling for a human outbreak of this disease? Yeah, um, I mean, it's good to plan, isn't it? So the uh, thing is, that with um, avian influenza, it's, it's, it's a, a fairly simple RNA virus. So they they mutate very, very rapidly, but they, they undergo genetic reassortment. So they can combine elements of um, other influenza viruses into their own genomes, which, which means that they can, they can form these distant, different strains very, very quickly. And sometimes those um, genetic reassortments do give rise to strains that can be more infectious, more deadly, as we're seeing right now. So I think it's sensible to plan. But um, and it's I can understand why people are so worried at the moment with regards to the the poultry industry and also with regards to wild birds. I mean, it's it's hitting more domestic flocks than we've ever seen before at the moment, and it's hitting wild birds in a way that we've never seen before. So conservationists and poultry farmers, uh, it's entirely understandable why they are so worried. From a human health perspective, I think at the moment we've got less to worry about but it's certainly very sensible to plan for all eventualities. Thinking a bit ahead to Christmas, a question that some people might have is, if you eat a turkey that has been previously infected with bird flu, what are the health risks there? 
you shouldn't be able to eat a turkey that is infected with bird flu because that disease should have been identified before the animal was uh, was killed and, and prepared. So it's it's highly unlikely that any birds will be getting through to the human uh, human food chain that are um, affected by avian influenza. Having said that, again, as long as the really good standards of hygiene and, uh, are maintained, then the risks can be mitigated. I don't know anybody that eats, eats um, undercooked chickens or, or, or turkeys, for example, um, and yet, you know, he- heating to a, a high degree uh, or a high temperature, so the internal temperature is, is well above 70 degrees centigrade, is enough to kill off any virus. So the, the risks to people from eating poultry right now are minimal. But again, I'm going to say that with a degree of uncertainty. When you spoke about uh, a possible middling species between birds uh, that allows this virus to spread, is there going to be any way of identifying that species? Is it a case of just simply getting out of the binoculars each morning and studying really hard? Or is is there a, a proper scientific way to identify this? Um, yes, well, uh, we've got, we have work ongoing at the moment uh, in, in collaboration um, with a, a range of uh, universities and other research institutes around the country where we're looking more intently at um, the diversity of birds that um, may be affected by avian influenza. So we're, we're sampling, uh, well, colleagues at the uh, Rosalind Institute up in Edinburgh uh, are sampling a wide diversity of environments to see if they can detect virus in different environments that different species live in. I very much doubt that there is a single species that we can point the finger at. Um, I suspect it's a, a large, complicated ecological network of species that are involved in um, both transmission of the virus as an infection, but also the movement of virus in contaminated material, um, such as um, sediments, feces that may be picked up. You know, say, for, for example, if a bird was um, in a reed bed or in a mud flat where infected ducks, geese, or swans would be, if they picked up that mud, picked up feces on their feet, uh, then they may just simply carry that contamination. So I think it's uh, it's quite it's quite a complicated process that we haven't yet identified. So it's uh, it's not as simple as just sitting out with your binoculars. It's we've we've got a number of dots to join up um, before we can really work out how this disease is moving around um, from uh, immigrant ducks, geese, and swans, and and then spreading around the wild population of birds. Is there a vaccine for this strain of bird flu? So there are there are or vaccines have been developed in the past uh, against avian influenzas, but as we've seen with the COVID outbreak, you know these viruses change rapidly and unpredictably. So you really need to be developing new vaccines regularly to keep on top of it. Uh, and this is one of the many challenges that we would face in in in, in developing any uh, any approach um, to vaccination of of domestic birds, for example, which is not currently part of the strategy in the UK. It's being looked at in the EU. Um, so there are plans to explore the development of vaccines for the vaccination of poultry flocks uh, in, in across the EU, but we're not intending to do that uh, in the UK at the moment because of the many challenges of developing the right sort of vaccine um, in time to combat the prevalent uh, prevalent strain. I mean, the prevalent strain of H5N1 is not the same strain of, as a, of H5N1 that emerged in China in the 1990s. It's a very different organism. It's not the same as the strains of um, H5N1 that were here just a couple of decades ago. So they they do change. They they reassort their genetics. They mutate very very frequently. So it's a real challenge to develop those vaccines. So you're saying that bird flu is mutating a lot faster than COVID ever did? 
Um, I, I don't have any metrics um, to be able to give you an estimate of how rapidly it has changed. But what we do know is that um, the you know this, we encounter different strains at different times throughout the year, and the strain we get in one year is different to the strain, or the dominant strain we uh, detect in one year is, is often di- different to the strain we detect um, in a following year. So it just seems to, uh, as I say, both mutate and uh, genetically reassort uh, very, very frequently, very rapidly. Uh, and hence give rise to these new strains. What are still the biggest unknowns about this strain of bird flu? Um, at the moment, I mean, we, we still don't really know why it is so infectious. Uh, we, don't, we don't know why it is so deadly. So we, we need to understand a lot more about the virus and its genetic makeup. And that will be helpful not only to work out why it is the way it is right now, but that will also give us a much better idea about what we might expect from this strain of the virus um, in the near future. So how it might continue to mutate, how many steps of mutation or genetic reassortment it um, might be needed for it to make, for example, the jump to human beings. We can start predicting that. So that's a big unknown. We also have no idea why it is affecting so many different species of wild birds in ways that it hasn't done before. So it'd be really helpful to understand why, um, so we can at least try and think uh, about new ways of trying to reduce potential consequences or mitigate consequences for wild bird populations, because it does seem to be having quite a devastating impact on, on many of those populations. The other big unknowns is we really don't know how it spreads um, among wild bird communities and therefore from wild bird communities to uh, the poultry shed. So as I said earlier, we need to join up all of those dots to be able to work out how the virus flows from uh, both immigrant uh, wild birds, but also now birds that stay within the country over the summer. How does it get from them into other bird species and then into the poultry shed? We need to understand that uh, a a great deal more as well. So there's there's lots and lots of questions that still need to be answered on this. So you were saying earlier about how this virus is not so much seasonal anymore, that it's happening pretty much the entire year. Is that quite a big problem in terms of sort of the bird population then? If there isn't any sort of rest for them, will a lot more be dying off essentially? I mean, many of our birds are migratory. We'll, we'll, we, we see, you know, huge influxes of birds um, in the autumn, and then they'll uh, disappear off to their breeding grounds again in the spring. Uh, and they will be taking variants now that have probably developed in the UK um, back to their um, Central European and, uh, and Northern Asian breeding grounds. So, will it will it be a, more of a problem? I mean, yes, inevitably it will, because uh, for, for those birds that stay present in the UK over the summer, it will continue to be. Uh, an issue for them but it's also going to continue being a a problem for poultry farmers um, because in the past it was a case that it seemed to just um, die out with the spring migration as birds uh, uh, return to wild birds return to their breeding grounds the disease seemed to just die out of the uh, of the wild populations and hence the risk was not posed to domestic poultry but with it now spending the summer here uh, we can expect to see continuing outbreaks if this strain of the virus continues in the way that it that has done for the past 12 plus months then we can uh, we can expect to see continuing outbreaks on poultry farms throughout uh, the next summer next spring and summer as well so overall humans seem to be fairly safe but for birds it's pretty much almost like the early stages of 2020 with covid in humans 
Um, it's a it's a devastating disease. Yes, the um, uh, the the highly pathogenic strains of avian influenza, by definition, uh, have a very very high mortality rate uh, amongst poultry, and they seem to be having this very high mortality rate amongst certain seabirds as well now. So yes, they are. It is a very devastating disease for populations of birds. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say about bird flu that we haven't covered already? Just, I think, I think really a message to remain vigilant um, and to keep reporting uh, observations of birds that are found dead out in the wild. So there is a, a reporting mechanism uh, via DEFRA, whereby those wild birds can be uh, reported. And in doing that, we should be able to get a better picture on what strains are going around wild bird populations. So if you if you find a cluster of birds dead in a field, for example, or, or you know you're out you're out for a, um, a weekend walk or something, and you you find a few birds just dead in a rather unusual circumstance, so that you can't explain in any other way, then that would be good reason to alert uh, Defra to come out and um, collect samples from those birds and test them for bird flu. Dr. Ward, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. That was Dr. Alistair Ward, Associate Professor of Biodiversity and Ecosystem Management at the University of Leeds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius, brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as your preferred app store. You can, of course, also find us online at sciencefocus.com. Thank you.